Well, I know that um, probably about the last thing we need in our world right now is another controversial issue to kind of cause division, you know, in, in our world. But there's something that's really been bothering me <laughs> this past week. And it's something that I think is, is a big enough deal that it's probably worth starting a movement over. Okay, and it's this. Spring should not start in March. The official beginning date of spring, it shouldn't start in March. It's false advertising. It's false advertising, right? Like we might get a few mild days here and there. We've had some this week, I know, but it's fickle, right? You guys know this, it never sticks. Even if there's a day where we can like pull out our spring jackets, we all know that we could be scraping ice off of our windshields at any moment. March is too soon to be giving people the false sense of hope that we've crossed winter's finish line, right? Are you guys with me? Can we do this? All right. But with that said, we did have uh, some nicer weather this week, this, this first week of spring, and Tuesday was one of those days where it, it really did feel like spring, right? It was warm, it was sunny, and after work on Tuesday, I went to my parents' house uh, to spend time with my nephew, Ethan, who's seven. And there's nothing quite like hanging out with a kid on those first early days of spring. Ethan was just vibrating with excitement. Like when I walked into the door, I didn't even get a hello. It was just a, let's play outside. And somehow, I think we managed to squeeze a little tiny bit of every single outdoor activity into about an hour. We got out the skateboards, we got out the scooters, we had out uh, the unicycle, we've got a unicycle. Um, we pumped up the tires on the bikes, we took them out for a ride on the trail. Uh, we crouched down beside all of the gardens and we oohed and we awed at all of the flowers that were starting to pop through. I have a picture actually of, of Ethan there looking at yellow flowers starting to pop through the dirt. Uh, we did it all. We did it all. And when it was time to go inside, we were putting everything away. And Ethan said uh, this. He said, I love summer and I love fall but spring is my favorite because it's so surprising. It's not cute, it's cute, right? So surprising. Do you feel that? Of course, spring isn't really actually surprising, right? In the sense that we know it's gonna be showing up every year, right? We have it on our calendars. But nonetheless, there's something about seeing those first flowers burst up through the dirt that always feels like a surprise, right? Because those early signs of spring point ahead to a reality that we know is coming, right? They point ahead to the reality that even if we have to endure a snowstorm or two between now and then, spring, it's on its way. And soon the sun is going to be shining and there will be leaves on the trees and everything will start coming back to life again. Those early signs of spring fill us with hope because they give us a taste of a reality that we don't yet get to experience, but that we know is on the way. 
And after months and months of darkness and cold temperatures and wet socks, we're desperate. We're desperate for signs of another reality that's warmer and brighter and more full of life than what we've been experiencing. And in a way, the church is called to fill the world with the same sense of surprise, with the same sense of hopeful anticipation. In a world that can feel very dark, the church is called to be a community that reflects God's light to others. In a world that can feel very cold, the church is called to be a community that experiences and that extends God's love. In a world that's filled with death and decay, the church is called to be a community that lives in light of the resurrection of Christ. In a world that's obsessed with striving after things like power and status and wealth, the church is called to be a community that points ahead to God's kingdom and that acts as a tangible expression of what it looks like when it shows up in the here and in the now. And this morning, as we think about what it would look like for Evergreen to be a community of people that are engaged and that care for each other well, that's really what we're talking about. Care and engagement aren't just a couple of items on a checklist of things that we should be doing as a church. They're actually central components of what it means to be the church. And here's why. Because when Jesus was preparing his disciples for his crucifixion, when he was helping them to imagine what it would be like to continue to live as his followers when he was no longer present there with, him in, with them in person, he told them that there was one thing that was going to make their community distinct from the rest of the world. There was one thing, and that is love, right? John 13, verses 34 to 35, read this. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Let that sink in for a minute. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Jesus says that it's our love for each other that's going to prove to the world that we're his followers, not our political affiliation, not our airtight theology, not even our ethical behavior. All those things matter, but Jesus says that love is to be the distinctive marker that tips people off to the reality that we are followers of Jesus. And love is the characteristic that empowers us to be that sign of resurrection, that surprising sign of hope in our dark world. And that sounds really great, doesn't it? But there is one teeny tiny problem. The church isn't always great 
with the whole love thing. Right? And we know this. We all know this. Throughout history and in our world today, there are countless ways that we fail to live into this. There's no way around that, right? There's no, there's no denying that. But here's the thing. Despite the failures of human beings, the church, not the institution, not the services that take place once a week, but the community of people who are committed to the ways of Jesus, the church is still God's plan for showing the world what it looks like to live in his kingdom, what his kingdom is all about. We're living in a world that's desperately in need of the gospel. We're living in a world that's desperately in need of God's love. We're living in a world that's desperately in need of the hope and the peace and the freedom that can only be found in Christ. And I can't help but to imagine what could happen if in this season, when we've been forced to come face to face with the sin and the brokenness within the Western church, rather than disengaging and walking away or becoming bitter or cynical, we pressed in even more and paid even closer attention to who exactly Jesus calls us to be and opened ourselves up to God's spirit so that he can show us what's gone wrong and then renew us and restore us and draw us back to the heart of the gospel that we're called to embody and to proclaim. And according to Jesus, the heart of the gospel is love. Now, love is one of those words that's important to define. Because love can mean all kinds of different things in our culture, and some of them have very little to do with the kind of love that scripture talks about. Even the dictionary's definition of love is a far cry from the kind of love that scripture calls us to. Webster's dictionary defines love as strong affection for another. In other words, love is a feeling. It's an emotional experience. But scripture talks about love as something much bigger and much deeper and much steadier than that. In his book called A Fellowship of Difference, Scott McKnight talks about four different elements of the kind of love that scripture talks about. Four different elements of the kind of love that God has for us and the kind of love that we're called to have for one another. And the first element of love is rugged commitment. Rugged commitment. In scripture, love isn't primarily a feeling. It's a covenant commitment to another person. It's a commitment that holds steady when things are going well in a relationship and when things are going less well in a relationship. It's a commitment that endures when someone's at their best and when they're at their worst. And I love that McKnight uses the word rugged because it points to a reality that we all know is true. 
right? That sometimes love can be really hard. We all love the idea of love until we're being asked to love somebody that we find really difficult to love, right? Until we're being asked to love somebody that is really different than us, somebody that's on the other end of the political spectrum, somebody that we don't understand, somebody that we find annoying. Love is a beautiful idea until we're being asked to love somebody that's difficult to love. But biblical love isn't about warm, fuzzy feelings. It's about a rugged commitment to another person. The second element of love is a rugged commitment to be with. It's about a commitment to be with. It's about presence. Throughout the Old Testament, God promises again and again that he will always be the God of Israel and that Israel will always be his people. When Jesus was born, he was called Emmanuel, right? God with us. In scripture, love is all about presence. Love requires relationship. It requires proximity. Love is a rugged commitment to be with another person. The third element of love is a rugged commitment to be for another person. When you love somebody, you have their back. You're in their corner, you're on their side. To love somebody is to want and work for their best interest. And the fourth element of love is a rugged commitment to be unto God's perfect design for a person. And that one's a little bit uh, less clear in kind of the label of the category, but the point is this. God's love transforms us. God's love changes us into the people that he designed us to be, into people who are loving, into people who are holy, into people who glorify God and focus on others rather than ourselves. And when we love each other, that changes us too. When we we make space for each other and extend God's love to one another, we can experience healing and transformation through our relationships. In scripture, love isn't a feeling. It's a covenant commitment to be with somebody, to be for them, and to help them to become the person that God designed them to be. And this is the kind of love that Jesus says should be the defining feature of his disciples. So what do we do with this gap that exists between who Jesus calls us to be and where we're at kind of as the Western church. Russell Moore is a theologian and an ethicist from the United States. And a little while ago, I heard him being interviewed on a podcast about this very question, about how to find a hopeful way forward in light of everything that's gone wrong in the church. And what he said really stuck with me. He said, the challenge is that we want a solution that's the size of the problem. We want a solution that's the size of the problem. We want to find that movement or that formula that's going to fix the church, that's going to make everything better all at once. When the reality is that large-scale change doesn't usually happen that way. It's not usually how it happens. 
Big changes happen in our communities and in our organizations when a lot of people make a lot of small changes. And then they make some more small changes. And then they make some more small changes. Or, as Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. In God's kingdom, things that seem small and insignificant have power to grow into something bigger than we could ever imagine. And I think that what that means is that the way back to being the church that Jesus calls us to be, the way back to being a community of people who are known for our love is actually very simple. It's you and I choosing love in small, ordinary ways as God opens up those opportunities for us each and every day. And just trusting that God is working within us and through us in the midst of it. This morning, we're going to look at a passage from the book of Mark that has some powerful things to teach us about how to be a community that loves each other well. And this passage is a little bit of a hidden gem when it, become, when it comes to this conversation because it isn't the first place in our Bibles that most of us would turn to for guidance and for inspiration on caring for one another well. And yet, if we pay close attention... I think it offers us some really important correctives to how we often interact with each other. And it shows us the way forward to becoming a community that that cares for each other well. So if you have your Bible, you can open it up with me uh, to the book of Mark. We're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. So Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. It says this. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. And so Jesus has been out and about, he's been doing healing, he's been teaching, and he has attracted a lot of attention. He's become really popular. And then he goes back home to Capernaum, and before long, the place where he's staying is packed. It's packed with people inside and outside. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. So these four men have a friend who's paralyzed, right? And they want to get him to Jesus, but there's so many people there. The crowd's so big that they can't get through. And so they go up a a staircase, and these houses would have had staircases um, outdoors that would get you up onto the roof. Roofs kind of functioned like decks. And they start digging. Roofs in this culture uh, were made of branches and rushes that were laid, laid over beams and then covered with mud. And so it was actually very possible to dig through a roof. It was very possible, but it wasn't preferable if you were the kind of person who liked having a roof. So there was that. Now, if you were Jesus, 
What do you think the first thing would be that you would say to this group of men that were now standing before you as you kind of like shook the dirt out of your hair? I know what I would say. I would say, what did you do to the roof? <laughs> right? The door's over there. Are you going to pay for that? <laughs> but that's not what Jesus says. Let's look at verse 5. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus doesn't see the mess on the floor. He doesn't see the expense of the broken roof. What he sees is the faith of these men who had just gone to such extreme measures to get their friend right up close to him. Verse 6. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what's he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking, so he asked them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are, are forgiven? Or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? So I'll prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed, praising God, ex exclaiming, we've never seen anything like this before. So Jesus forgives this man's sins. He heals his body, and he sends him on his way. And everyone starts praising God because of what they've just seen. And now there are all kinds of things going on in this passage. But this morning, we are going to focus specifically on those four men who go above and beyond to get their friend to Jesus. Because even though they aren't the, the heroes of the story, even though they're not the ones who do the healing, they give us a powerful example of what love, of what rugged commitment to another person looks like in practice. And we're going to talk about three aspects of how these men spring into action that can show us the way forward when it comes to being a community that's defined by love. The first important thing to notice about these guys is that they're looking at the world through a different set of lenses than most of us tend to look at the world most of the time. I mean, these guys have just heard that Jesus is back in town. They've heard that Jesus is able to perform miracles. Do you know what I would be doing if I was in their shoes? If, if I was in their shoes? I'd be doing like a full body scan. I'd be thinking, what can Jesus do for me, right? Maybe Jesus can do something about my dry eyes. My optometrist tells me I have the eyes of an elderly person. That's true. Maybe he can fix my vision. Maybe he can do something about my seasonal allergies. Or maybe even better, maybe he can top up my bank account. And what can Jesus do for me? Most of us spend most of our time Focused, focusing on our own wants, right? Our own needs. Most of us spend so much time focusing on our own desires that we can be totally oblivious 
to the needs of those around us. And when we're all spending all of our time thinking about what we want and what other people can be doing for us, it's really easy to become bitter. It's really easy to put unfair pressure on other people because we get thinking that they should be just as concerned about taking care of our needs as we are. When we're all focusing on what we want and when we all feel uh, entitled to have other people taking care of our needs, our communities become known for conflict rather than love, right? The men in this story are looking at the world through a different set of lenses. They're looking around for who's at risk of being left behind and what they can do about it. They're looking around to see who needs their help. They're looking around for an opportunity, opportunity to show their rugged commitment to be with somebody. And because of that, not only do they help their friend get to, get to where he needs to be in order to experience healing from Jesus, they get to experience the joy of seeing Jesus do what only he can do in another person's life. When we're able to set ourselves aside and to celebrate the wins of other people, love can grow and knit us together in a really powerful way in our community. The second thing to notice about the men in this story is that they stepped outside of the crowd and this is really important. Mark talks a lot about crowds in his gospel. They're always crowds flocking to Jesus. But the crowds aren't actually painted in a positive light. The crowds are interested in what Jesus is doing. But they're not willing to go any deeper than that. The crowds are fickle. It's like springtime in March, right? When Jesus' teaching gets hard, they're out. They walk away. And often, the crowds get in the way of people who want to get to Jesus. The men in this story aren't just passive spectators. They're not standing back, waiting to see what this new rabbi is going to do next. These men catch on to what Jesus is all about. And they spring into action. And they become participants in what he's doing in the world. They show a rugged commitment to being for their friend. And in our consumeristic culture, it's easy to go to church in the same way that we go to the movie theater, right? We talk about this sometimes. It's easy to just kind of sit back and to take it in, to be passive spectators. But faith always compels us to action. Jesus commends the guys in this story for their faith, not because of anything they believe. They haven't talked about that. Not because of anything that they feel, but because of what they do. Faith always compels action. And that action is always characterized by love. And the third thing that stands out about the men in this story is that they were willing to sacrifice in order to help their friend 
experience healing. They showed a rugged commitment to being unto God's perfect design for their friend. They were willing to sacrifice their egos. I mean, first of all, in this culture, uh, the man who was paralyzed would have been looked down on, right, and marginalized. And so the guys had to lay down their pride just to even associate with him. But we can also imagine that they probably didn't strike up like a huge fan club as they were destroying the roof on this house. People were probably yelling at them, right? People were probably making fun of them. They had to put their egos on the line. And not only that, they had to decide that they would be willing to cover the cost of the roof they were tearing apart. I mean, this would have come up. They could only have expected that they would have been held responsible for that. They didn't know going into this situation how things were going to unfold, right? They were willing to give up their money. Real love, true love, always involves sacrifice. 1 John 3.16 says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and our sisters. The men in this story were willing to sacrifice whatever was necessary to get their friend to Jesus. They were willing to find a way around the crowd. They were willing to tear apart a roof. They were willing to do whatever it took to help their friend experience the love and the healing power of Jesus. And I don't think that that's a bad way to think about what we are called to as Jesus followers. We're called to be a community that's willing to do whatever it takes to bring people to Jesus, to give people the opportunity to experience the transforming power of his love. Now, the paralyzed man plays a passive role in this story, but there was actually something required of him as well. He had to be willing to receive help. And for many of us, it's actually much harder to receive help than it is to give help. Because in order to receive help, we have to admit that we're not okay. We need to acknowledge our weakness, right? We have to acknowledge that we don't have it all together. We need to be vulnerable with others. It feels good really, to be in a position where we have the strength and the resources to be able to help somebody else, but it doesn't feel so good to be in a position where we don't and where we have to depend on others. And yet, when we're really doing life as a community, each one of us will have times when we have the resources that are needed to help someone else. And each one of us will have times where we're struggling, having a hard time getting by, and where we need to turn to others for help. And a community of love is a community where we're willing to give with joy, with generosity, and a community where we're able to receive with gratitude and with humility. While we all look to Jesus for healing and for transformation. We are continuing to move through this season of transition as a church. 
And as we've talked about, times of transition always open up the opportunity to reflect on where we're at and where God's calling us to go next. Times of transition always open up the opportunity to think about what matters the most and to reorder the ways that we're living individually and as a community so that we can be more faithful to what God's calling us to. And my hope and my prayer is that as we move forward into whatever God has for us next, that we would be a community that more fully reflects God's love to our broken world. So that just as the flowers bursting through the dirt and the buds popping up on trees fill us with hope and point us towards a reality that's yet to come, we will be a sign of what God's kingdom of love looks like when it shows up in the here and the now. I'm going to close this morning by reading Paul's famous passage on love from the book of 1 Corinthians. And uh, this is a passage that's often read at weddings, right? We often think about it in that context. But the truth is, Paul was writing uh, this passage to a church that was dealing with conflict. And so that can be, I think, a helpful lens for us to listen to it through. And I want to encourage you as I read it to just focus on the words and to just let them sink into your heart. It says this, If I could speak all the languages of earth and of angels but didn't have love, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I understood all of God's secret plans and possessed all knowledge, and if I had such faith that I could move mountains but didn't love others, I would be nothing. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it, but if I didn't love others, I would have gained nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It's not irritable and it keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never lose faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are love and that you call us, you invite us to be people who experience your love, who open our hands to receive your love, who are transformed by your love. And in doing that, to be people who extend that love to others, who reflect that love to one another within our church community and within our world. And God, I pray once again that you would just help us to live into this well here at Evergreen. You know, we know that we're living in a world that's struggling with hope. We know that there's people in our community who have lost faith in the church. But God, we want to be a community that in this time, in this season, that turns to you, that's even more intentional about focusing on what you're calling us to, Jesus. And I pray that you would help us to live into that well. In your name, amen.